had a dream a few weeks ago about what God wanted to tell our church, I believe. And in my dream, I was in a room in a house and I was looking out the window and I saw a storm that was beginning to come in. And I realized this storm is not just a normal storm, but that there would be a tornado in the middle of the storm. So I grabbed everyone I could, everyone I could see, and I said, we have to get to the basement. We have to be safe. So we're all standing in this basement. When I look around and I realize it is not going to be enough just to be in a basement, just to hide away. We have to grab hold of the foundation because he is coming and this storm is coming. And I looked at my dad, Pastor John, and I said, are you ready for this? Are you ready for what's to come? And so we all grabbed hold of the foundation and then I woke up. He is coming and a new storm is coming. And the scripture in Hebrews 12 says, he will shake everything that can be shaken so that what remains cannot be shaken. And I believe God wants to shake things. I believe he wants to do things. But in order for him to do that, we have to grab hold of the foundation. And that foundation is him, is Jesus. And so I encourage you all, grab hold of the foundation. Well, hello, Jubilee Fellowship Church. My name is Evan Martin, and I am the campus pastor at the Lakewood campus. And so I want to take a second and just say hello to my friends and family at Lakewood and to Highlands Ranch and Castle Rock and also Lone Tree. I'm super excited to be here. I'm here because Pastor John is in Israel with 85 people. And so uh, they are returning this week and will be back in the pulpit. But the video that we just saw was Kate, and that is Pastor John's daughter. And as we were gathering several weeks ago to talk about the next series that we were going to have, and we landed on the term epicenter and how an encounter with Christ shakes us even to the core of who we are. And Kate shared that dream, and we discussed it, and I thought, you know what, there's there's prophecies and there's words that get given to Pastor John. He mentioned that last week in his sermon. And some of those are just for him to process, and other of those we feel like, okay, let's share that with the congregation. And so we decided to do that, and it fits in because we're talking about Epicenter and how, how an encounter with Jesus really does take us back to the foundation of who we are, and it encourages us to press into him, hold on to him, and then see what happens as, as we allow him to shake up who we are. And so I want to tell you guys a story today about a time when the Israelites were huddled together. And just like Kate mentioned uh, in her dream about people who went down to the foundation, down to the basement, they were huddled uh, in a darker place. I'm going to tell you about a story when the Israelites, they had to run off to the hills and they found caves. They actually dug caves and created homes for themselves. And so I'm going to share that story a little bit. But I also want to remind us of uh, what Pastor John briefly mentioned last week, and that was the story of Zacchaeus. And you guys remember the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man who climbed a tree and had an encounter with Jesus. And that one encounter, Jesus coming to his home, radically affected his life. You guys know that he stood up amongst all of his friends and said, not after Jesus had admonished him or chastised him for what he had done wrong. He was a tax collector, 
And in that business, it was common for him to kind of take some money for himself and maybe his friends and the system of tax collectors that were underneath him, him being the chief of those tax collectors in Jericho. But in that setting, Jesus, inviting himself into Zacchaeus' home, Zacchaeus stands up in front of everyone that was associated with him, and he said, in all of your presence, I declare this day that I will return to whom all I have stolen from four times over. So if one encounter with Jesus can take a man like that and radically affect his life, we want to dive in and say, okay, Jesus, are we allowing you to have a real and radical encounter in our own lives? And so I want to tell you guys a story uh, about a man named Gideon. But before we do that, we're going to pray. But I also want to tell you uh, just kind of a newsworthy event. It happened when we were studying and preparing for this message and for this series. Uh, it was back on September 24th of this year. There was a massive earthquake, but it wasn't anywhere around us. It was just off the coast of southern Peru. Now, I have friends in Peru, and I used to go to Peru every six months and uh, participate in uh, training up pastors down there. And so when I saw that and when I read about that, it had an effect on my life. But you know what? Not one other person here in Colorado talked to me about that earthquake that happened in southern Peru. Why? Because the distance from the epicenter determines the effect that it has on our life. And so what I want to do is we kind of cast a big umbrella over this, is I want you to think, how close am I really allowing Jesus to become the epicenter of my life, and how much effect am I actually really seeing? So join with me, we'll pray, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about Gideon, and I think God's going to do a special thing here as we proclaim and then dissect his word. So Heavenly Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, we give you an open door, a glad welcome to come into our lives, to shake us up, to move things that need to be moved, to rearrange things in our life. Jesus, you breathed over the disciples as they were huddled together in that room in fear for their lives. You breathed over them, and then it says that you unlocked their minds to understand your words and how your words related to the Holy Scriptures and your plan for them moving forward. And so, Jesus, we just invite you at each of our campuses, during each of our services, to breathe over us, be present with us, God. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I realize when I say a name like Gideon, some of us can maybe dial back into the Sunday school uh, era of our life, and maybe it was felt bored, maybe it was a favorite Sunday school teacher, maybe it was uh, a classroom setting. You remember something about Gideon, and, and it has to do with maybe a fleece that was on the ground that was either wet or not wet, something like that, and then uh, men drinking from a river, and then him telling them to leave the army and go home. So what I want to do, before we just actually read the scripture and dissect it and pull it apart, let's tell this whole story and catch everybody up and put everybody on the same page. So here's where we find ourselves today. 
When we talk about Gideon, we're talking about a man who was a judge in Israel. His story is found in, in the book of Judges, chapter 6. And real quick story, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity. They wander in the desert for 40 years, and then it's, it's by the leading of Joshua that they actually cross the Jordan River, march around Jericho, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and that enters them into an epoch of time where the 12 tribes of Israel begin to kind of spread out, claim their land, fight their enemies, and then settle down. And it's in this settling period where they've had peace that the generations that knew of the works of God, that were told of the radical release from Egypt and all of the miraculous powers that God performed on their behalf, those generations start to die off, and they died off, sadly, without teaching their children and their children's children. And so we find the different tribes of Israel living in their promised land. But some of them had not done completely what they were asked to do. They were asked to completely eradicate their enemies, to tear down all of the altars and the gods that those people who had lived there before were apt to worship and start afresh in that promised land with one true God and with one true purpose of doing everything to honor and glorify Him and proclaim His name. And so we get into this season where they don't have kings. This is before David, and it's before Saul, and it's before Solomon. And so we find them as a nation without real, true, one-man-pointed leadership. And so they had different judges that came for different seasons. And the judge right before Gideon was a woman named Deborah, and she actually uh, routed enemies before Gideon came onto the scene. But now we find ourselves, after a season of peace, now the Lord has brought the Midianites, enemies to Israel, and for seven years they have been devastating the tribes and the land of Israel. They've been coming in. They were nomads living in the desert. And about harvest time, every year for seven years, they would come through the land right when the Israelites were supposed to harvest their crops. And they would devastate the land by just camping on the land, letting their herds and their flocks eat what they didn't take for themselves. They would even steal the Israelites' flocks and herds. And so what did Israel do? They had to hide out in the caves and in the mountains. They made caves for themselves in fear for their lives because they were not powerful enough and they didn't have a leader to stand up for them and say enough is enough and go and attack the Midianites. But what happened? Let's tell this story and then we'll dive back into the details of it. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press because you see, as the wheat got to harvest time, what would happen? That would be a very festivist time. It would be full of friends and family rejoicing for the harvest that they were having, and they would thresh wheat out in the open, and you would, as you would do that, you would throw it up into the wind, and the chaff would blow away, and you would have the kernels and the grains of wheat. So you would do that out in the open, and you would start to stack and pile these hills of your harvest, and it was done in a way where families and friends were brought together, and a nation rejoiced over that. But we find our hero to be in this moment, hiding in a wine press, threshing and beating wheat just enough for himself and his family. And he did that undercover, 
grapes are harvested later than wheat is. And so he would do that in this wine press so it would be more messy and he would have to clean that up because the chaff wouldn't blow away. And so our hero is there and I know that he's probably sitting there the very act of what he is doing is because the Midianites have been allowed to ravage that place and steal probably even from him and his family. And so he's doing this and he's probably praying to God and and wondering what's going on. Some of us maybe find ourselves in a place like that where we're trying our best, but we're just not strong enough and we just don't have as much influence as we need to completely change our circumstances and our situation. And so he's in the wine press and then who shows up? The angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, that would basically equate that the Lord himself shows up. Gideon thinks that it's just a foreign visitor, a man come to talk to him. And so he begins to dialogue with him, and they start to discuss the current situation, how Israel is being held back and beaten down by their enemies. And so he talks, and then all of a sudden, through their conversation, And through the words of the angel of the Lord, Gideon realizes, I'm not talking to just a man, I'm talking to the Lord. And the Lord commissions him to do something and effect radical change. And Gideon's like, me, really? I don't don't know, I'm I'm not quite sure about this. But he builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice and, and the Lord tells him, I want you to go to your own father's home or land and tear down the altar that's been built and established to the god Baal. And the Asherah pole that's right next to it, I want you to tear that down and start to effect radical change within your own family, within your own household. He does that. He almost gets killed because the men of the town, the small town, come out the very next morning and say, who did that? And eventually they find out who it is. They go knock on Gideon's father's door and demand that he bring his son Gideon out to be killed. And that's when Joash... Gideon's father stands up in defense of his own son. What's funny about that is that, we'll go into this later, but the altar that Gideon knocked down was actually Joash's own place of worship. It was his own altar. But the town is incredulous that an act like this could happen, and so they're demanding death, and it's, and it's Gideon's own dad that says, you believe in Baal? If Baal's a god, let Baal contend. And so you can see that there starts to be this ripple effect and Gideon's starting to change things and then the Lord stirs in Gideon's heart and says, I want you to take this not just in the context of your home and in your village, but I want you to take this to the nation. I want you to release Israel from the burden and the fear of the Midianites. And so he does that and he sounds a trumpet, and he goes out. He establishes an army. He calls people to come and be in the army. Those who wanted to kill him originally are now inspired by him, and they actually come and work for him in the army, defending him, following him. And he goes out, and the Lord stops him. As the Midianites are encamped in this valley, and the Israelites are encamped on this hill, the Lord stops him, and he says, no, you know what? Your army's too big. And Gideon's like, excuse me? The Midianites were over 100,000 strong. The Israelites weren't even that close, but you guys know that story that the Lord has Gideon separate the men, send send some of the men of the army back home, and he ends up with 300 soldiers to attack 
over 100,000 Midianites. God gives them a plan. They stand on a hill. They put a torch inside of a clay jar, and right in the third watch of the night, they break the jar, raise their torches, blow their trumpets, and it sends the Midianite camp into complete confusion. The Midianites start killing themselves, start running away, and then those 300 men start the attack, and then eventually Gideon calls on all the Israelites and all the tribes to come and wipe out the Midianites. So that is to get us all on the same page. That's a brief overview of the story because now what I like to do, this is kind of a glimpse into uh, how I like to study the Bible. I like to get into the historical context, the meta-narrative of it, and then go back and pull out verse by verse, God, what are you saying here? So let's do that. And I'm going to put some of these verses up on the screen uh, at each of the campuses, and then we're going to do that. So, all right, planting but not harvesting, Judges chapter 6. Let's read verses 1 through 6. So uh, I will read this and just follow along on the screen or in your Bible or on the notes that you've been given. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land. They weighed laced, they weighed late, they laid waste the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So sometimes I think we feel pretty helpless. I think sometimes in this life that we're commissioned to live, some of us and we as pastors get to encounter and converse with people who feel like, boy, I just don't know what's going on. I don't know how to get out of this. And so some of those happen in pastoral counseling appointments. Some of those happen across the table at Starbucks. And then some of those happen in a way that we have crosses at each campus. And what I hold here is just a stack of, of prayer cards from last week at the Lakewood campus. And I'll take these from time to time and sit down and just pray over them. And most of them are anonymous. Some of them are desperate. Some of them are praise reports, and it's fun to watch from week to week how things progress, even if I couldn't identify from the people who show up in the congregation who it is. But they're scribbled down, and some of them are full front to back, and then some of them are just names. Pray for this person. Maybe it's a friend or a family. And I wanted to pull one of these out of here and read it. It's written, uh, my best guess, it looks like a girl wrote this. Um, my guess is because I don't have good handwriting, and this is kind of 
uh, good handwriting and a little girly handwriting anyway. So, but it says this, insecurity, fear, distractions, and doubts. And so what can we do when we see this? I, I don't know who this is, but I just by guessing think that maybe it's a young girl that comes to the Lakewood campus and, and finds herself either before service or after service walking to one of our crosses and just saying, Jesus, I need your help. I need your help in these areas, insecurity, fear, distractions, and doubt. And I wonder if that's where some of the Israelites found themselves at that point, where every year they would plant in hopes that there would be a harvest this year. Maybe these Midianites who were Bedouins, they were nomads, they lived in the desert, and they traveled, and the hope would be, we haven't seen them, we haven't heard from them, we haven't heard rumors from some of the other tribes of Israel or some of the other villages and towns from far away or from closer to the desert. We haven't heard from them yet, and so we're going to plant in faith that maybe this year will be the year that we finally harvest. I know through conversations that there's people that I've talked to even this week that have found themselves back in the emergency room multiple times in a week because of things that they're dealing with with their children or with themselves. And these are not bad people. These are just people who find themselves going, I, I don't know what to do. My enemies are stronger than I am. And so Jesus, would you help me? And so out of faith, we say, we're going we're gonna to plant again. We're going to sow again, and we're going to pray and hope that maybe this year we will reap. So if you find yourself planting but not reaping, if you find yourself sowing but not harvesting, you've found yourself in a story that is very similar to the things that maybe you or your friends or your family are going through right now, and you can encourage them with what happened in this story. See, Midian, they were just Bedouins. They were just nomads. And so Gideon is threshing the wheat in that wine press, and he's realizing the history of his great nation was once that they took on the most mighty nation in the whole world, the empire of Egypt, and they won, and they escaped, and they found their promised land, and so that they know that the promises of God are true. And now they find themselves attacked by an, by an enemy far weaker, far smaller, far less dominant. And so maybe some of us can look back in our life and say, golly, I've, I've conquered this, I've done this, I was able to do this, rewind four, five, six years ago, and this is where God had me. This is the path that God had me on to do this in my family or around my family or in my place of work, and now I find myself slowed down by something that's so much smaller and so much weaker. But here's what happened. Judges, same chapter, verse 12, it says this, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Are you talking to me? Gideon, he's hiding. 
He's doing something that would normally have been done in the open. And now he's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and greets him and calls him, O mighty man of valor. I think it's in those moments where we least expect it that if we will let God come to us, and that's the truth of the gospel, is that God comes to us. Emmanuel, God with us. He is a God who proclaims throughout the centuries that it's not what we can do. It's not what we have done in the past or what we will do in the future. He says, it's not about you, it's about me, and I'm a God who makes all the way up the gap between me and you. I make up that gap. And I come to you, and when I come to you, this is what I say. I look at you, and I say, oh, mighty man of valor. And you look around, and you think, I thought I'm the only one in this small little wine press doing my job, hiding from an enemy that I cannot possibly attack or confront on my own. And the Lord fills in that gap, and he doesn't just show up. He shows up, and he changes our identity See, I think sometimes we identify ourselves as Christians or as a churchgoer or somebody who believes in Christ, and we kind of wear it like we would wear a sticky name tag at a barbecue or a party or a big event or something like that so that people can see and recognize our name. I think sometimes we wear that Christian label on us. And Jesus, as he reaches through time and space, he comes not to just put a label on us. He comes to put a label inside of us. He's talking about not just a name here. He's talking about identity. And he looks at each and every one of us and says, oh, mighty man of valor, oh, mighty woman of valor, this girl who wrote on this card, he would speak to that girl, and maybe she's listening even now and realizes almost embarrassingly that she was the one that wrote this, and I'm going to look into the camera and say this, I think Jesus is coming to you and saying, you are a mighty woman of valor. No matter what you're going through, that you would write down and pin it to the cross, insecurity, fear, distractions, and doubt, wherever you have fallen short, the Lord would say that, and, he, and in saying that, he changes your identity because this won't go up on the board, but you can write this down in your notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. That means completely and utterly brand new. That which we think of ourselves, God doesn't think of us that way because when we identify ourselves in Christ, everything becomes new. And then Psalm 34, verse 7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. See, Gideon was the youngest in his family of the least of the tribes of Israel. They weren't expecting him to do much of anything but thresh his wheat and take care of his family. But there was something inside of him that was a little bit agitated about the current national situation. And I think if there's something inside of you that gets agitated with something that's just a little bit beyond your reach, start to look around and realize that maybe that's the Spirit of God stirring inside of you and start to look 
for an encounter. And if it takes you climbing a tree like Zacchaeus did, if it takes you finding a quiet place where you can have an encounter with Jesus, then go and do that. Jesus came not to just show us the way, but to fill us with his very presence so that we can radically affect change everywhere we go. So here's point number three, the ripple effect. Judges 6, verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So what happened here? The Lord encounters him in the wine press, calls him a mighty man of valor. Gideon realizes that he just had an encounter with the Lord. He builds an altar by the wine press and makes a sacrifice for the Lord, and the angel disappears. And then he realizes that really was, that really was the Lord. So he heard the Lord in that instance, and then Scripture tells us that later on he still heard the Lord. And the Lord told him this, I want you to go to your father's household and I want you to tear down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole that's right next to it. Baal was the sun god and Asherah was the goddess of night. And what they would do is they would find a high point in the village and maybe Joash, Gideon's dad, owned a hill that was kind of where everybody could see. And even though it was his property, the whole village and the whole town could go to this area where there was a huge altar to Baal and then an Asherah pole that they would offer sacrifices and do horribly ungodly things. But why did they do that? Because Gideon's tribe, many, many years before that, he was born into this. But before that, instead of going to that land and tearing down those altars, they allowed the, the people of that land to live with them. They began to intermarry and accept some of their customs. So here the Israelites are serving God to a certain degree, but also serving Baal at the same time. And so the Lord says, I want you to tear this down. So Gideon, I don't know if he was scared or smart. He decided to do this in the middle of the night. And so as I researched this, this is not just like kicking over some rocks and destroying an altar. This is like raising the surface of that hill. That's like taking rocks that require at least two men to move each one of them and then taking this pole that had a deep foundation, lifting it up and then cutting it. And so he took two oxen and he took 10 servants of his father's household, and they did this by night. So they spend all night doing this, and then they take one of those oxen, and they sacrifice that on a new altar that he built in the same place. So what do we learn from that? Maybe there's something in our life that we need to get rid of. And maybe as we find ourselves stuck in a cycle where it's God, I don't know exactly what to do, but I just feel like I'm being beat down and I'm trying to do everything that I possibly can do. And I've talked to people when they come and interact and they say, Evan, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to change our situation, whether the situation is they can't find a job, they're out of work, or there's medical situations. I am in those conversations, as are the other pastors, when they say, I'm willing to do anything. I'll take anything out of our life. We've looked We've turned over everything. 
And I think right here, the Lord says, I don't want you to just get rid of those altars to Baal and the Asherah pole. I want you to, to place an altar to me in that very same place. And so take that which we tear down, but don't just leave that hill void and empty. Take that and redeem what the enemy once owned. Redeem it as a place of worship and as a place of sacrifice. Does that make sense? Because when that happens, all of a sudden, what happens to Gideon? He goes to bed way late that night. He's probably sweating. He's not living in a place where there's air conditioning. He's getting about a couple hours of sleep, and all of a sudden, bam, 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 knocking on his father's door, and the whole village is out there, and they're totally upset. Their place of worship has been absolutely destroyed. The stones have been scattered. The pole has been cut into pieces and burned. And now there's a dead ox charred on top of this new altar. And everybody is in an uproar. What are we going to do? And so they say, Joash, give us your son because we know, we figured it out. Gideon did this. Maybe one of the servants gave him up. Maybe it was that somebody woke up to all the pounding and the fire and whatever, and they figured out who it was. And so here's Joash, who maybe earlier that week had sacrificed on that altar to Baal and worshipped Asherah, the god of night. So this man who stumbled in his own darkness and in his own rebellious ways He's now being confronted by his friends and extended family, the men of that town. And instead of giving Gideon up to be beaten or killed, something rises up in Gideon's father. See, because here's the truth. Faith begets faith, and courage begets courage. And so if you are courageous enough to stand up for your faith, even in the midst of a family who may not believe the same way that you believe, you will see miraculous and sometimes instantaneous change. Because it was one night, one action, that Gideon stood up, and all of a sudden, the true Israelites, the true Jews, knew the command that they had received from the Lord, that they do worship the one true God, and he is what? A jealous God. So Baal and the Almighty God are mutually exclusive. You can't have both, but they had been operating in a way where they did have both, and they did have worship to both gods. But because of that one courageous act, all of a sudden a man who made sacrifices to that God stood up and said, you know what? Let's read what he says. Chapter 6, verse 32 through 34. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. That's the last verse that we're going to go through and uh, we're going to kind of break this apart. But his father said this to those men. He said, You have come to my door to defend 
Baal, your God. And this man rose up in defense of his godly son and said this, If Baal is a god, then let Baal contend for himself. So he used kind of some philosophical jargon there, flipped the story really quickly and said, wait a minute, you have to defend your God? If you have to defend your God, then maybe the God you serve isn't really a God. So let's do this. I'm not going to give you Gideon. I'm not going to give you my son, but let's just watch. Let Baal contend. And so over the next couple of days, I'm sure there were people that were like, lightning's going to come down from heaven. Don't stand too close to Gideon because Gideon's gone because Baal's going to do this. And then nothing happened. And then nothing happened. And then nothing happened. And it's when the gods of this world don't come through that all of a sudden we rise up a little bit more. Wait a minute. Maybe Gideon did hear from the Lord. Maybe that crazy story about an angel appearing at the wine press is actually true. Maybe he did hear from the one true God, the God of our fathers and their fathers. Maybe it is time for us to return to a true, unadulterated faith and rise up. I find it interesting that they actually changed his name. They no longer referred to him as Gideon. They referred to him as Jerubbabel, which means let Baal contend. I think there's some of us at each of the campuses that are being stirred right now that would have a name proclaimed over them that says, let, let the gods of this world contend because I'm going to step out and I'm going to eradicate my household. I'm going to eradicate my sphere of influence to the worship of those that fall far short of the one true God. And then let's see what happens. Let's see what happens when we become radical in our faith and radical in our love of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear from Him, when we have an encounter with Him, and all of a sudden we decide, you know what, I don't have to offer these petty sacrifices to the gods of this world. I don't have to conform based on what my friends or my family would say. I don't have to hold my tongue in certain situations when I feel the Spirit of God rising up inside of me to say, not on my watch, not on my watch. And I know that all of us have had those situations where we're in, we're, when we're in a room and there's a conversation happening and we think, that is not right, that is not right, that is not right. I need to say something. I need to stand up and say something. And then the moment passes and you realize, I didn't say anything. But when you have a word from the Lord and it carries with you to the point of worship and then radical change and then daring faith, all of a sudden we're able to stand up and be something and someone a little bit stronger than what we were when we first walked into these rooms. See, his father defends him by saying, let Baal contend. Let's go out of here and win our family for Christ. See, because if there was a model that we were to look through Scripture in this story and say, God, how do I move from being Gideon to being Jerubbabel, from being the youngest of the family, of the least of the tribes, how do I move from there into becoming a world changer? Well, we don't just go out and start to affect the world and politics and national economics. We don't do that. I think the model presented here is this. We worship first. 
we interact with the Lord, we have an epicenter encounter where the Lord meets us, speaks to us, and we build an altar right outside of the wine press. And we say, if no one else will, I will worship the Lord, the one true God. And then we hear from God and he says, I want you to do this one thing. I want you to go back home and I want you to fill in the blank. Maybe it's unplug the computer. Maybe it's unplug the TV. Maybe it's have that conversation with a son or daughter. Maybe it's have that conversation with a mother or father. Maybe it's sit at a dinner table and bow your head and pray. Maybe it's a quiet, thoughtful change. Maybe it's full of conversation. Whatever it is, it starts in our own household and in our own family first. And we say, I don't care how my village is going to respond. You know, all of us have a village. And when we get to that point, when we say, I don't care how my village is going to respond, I think God is able to say, all right, now I'm going to do something special. So let's build an altar in our own home. Let's tear down the wrong altars that are in our own home or in our own territory, our own sphere of influence. Let's see how people respond and say this. Let Baal contend. If you're so upset, let Baal contend. And then that last verse. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. You know when you break apart that word? It actually is a word that creates an image in our mind. And it's this. The Spirit of God essentially picked up Gideon and inserted himself into Gideon, just like we would put on a jacket, pulls Gideon over himself, zips it up and goes to work. The Spirit of God clothed himself with Gideon, and then Gideon sounded the trumpet. And back then, when you sound a trumpet, all of the men would come to assembly because you're about to say, we're about to be attacked or we have been attacked, and I'm not going to stand for it. So the Spirit of God would take the youngest and the least and the most unworthy of us at all of our campuses this weekend. And he would say, when I put you on, when I wear you like an article of clothing, all of a sudden, you aren't just you anymore. You are Jerubabel. You are one who says, let Baal contend. Let the gods of this world contend because the Spirit of God who is inside of me is greater than he that is in the world. And he blows the trumpet. He assembles an army. And like I said at the beginning of this, he eradicates the enemy. So you know what happened after that? Years after that, when they planted, they would reap. When they sowed, they would have a harvest. And when they harvested, they would throw up the grains of wheat and let the chaff go to the wind in celebration. And they would pile 
their grain high and they would have a celebration and they would have a feast. And those caves and those strongholds up in the mountains, miles away, when they would have to pack up only that which they could carry and go hide there and live for the rest of the summer until the Midianites passed through and had their way with them. When one man in that nation said, I will sacrifice to the Lord, and I will allow the Spirit of God to live big inside of me, everything changes. And a nation was set free. And that is what, when we talk about an epicenter and a radical encounter with Jesus Christ, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something that we just don't come in here and sing a few songs and listen to a sermon and then go home. And when somebody asks us throughout the week, if we go to church or if we're a believer, we say, yeah, I'm a Christian. This is how I would categorize myself. Let us categorize ourselves by saying, let Baal contend. Bring it on, world, because the Spirit of God who lives inside of me is bigger and greater than he who's in the world. And I've got a word from the Lord that takes what I pin to the cross and says, insecurity, fear, distractions, and doubt, they fall to the ground because we have one who's greater, who comes to us and says, mighty man of valor, I have a commission for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are in our life. Jesus, right now I pray for those who have not heard your voice, who find themselves in a wine press threshing wheat, who find themselves in a cycle of being beat down by the enemy. God, I ask that you would have an encounter with them. I ask that you would become a personal God to them. I ask that you would speak to them, that you would be the lifter of their head, that you would call forth unto them and say to them that me with you means that you are a mighty man of valor, a mighty woman of valor, and your doubts, your fear, your insecurities, they go away because of your very presence and your very nature. So, Lord, we give you praise and we give you honor. And, God, for any who are at any of our campuses that say, I... I've come to this building, I've come to this campus, I've come to this place, I've come in the midst of this group of people. But I recognize that throughout the week, I serve two gods. I make sacrifices to that which deserves no glory. And so, God, for that, we all repent. We all beg your forgiveness And we all recognize that we have a need of a Savior. And so, Savior God, come and save us. Effect radical change in our life. For those who have never heard you, who have never known you, we ask that as we close in worship, as we have prayer teams for people to respond, and as we interact 
in our church community events and small groups throughout the week, God, I pray that your words would be spoken and that those who don't know you would come to know you. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And everyone said, amen.